Hey everybody, this is Kim Blackwell and Louis Extravaganza and this is Work, Work, the podcast. Voices for the voices that go unheard. Work the Podcast is sponsored in part by Oscars, a restaurant and event venue in downtown Palm Springs. Oscars plays host to a variety of events throughout the week, including live blues music on Monday evenings, a female celebrity impersonator show called Oscars Cabaret on Friday and Saturday nights, a fabulous drag brunch called The Bitchiest Brunch on Sunday mornings, and a world-famous tea dance on Sunday nights from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. For a complete list of their events and dinner menus, please visit OscarsPalmSprings.com. Hello, everybody. This is Louis Extravaganza, and welcome to another episode of Work. Don't Man. be trying to act like it's just your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm here, too. Wow. Yeah. I love, love, it's, love my Kim for that. It's just Kim over here. It's not just Kim. It's, <laughs> you know, the Kim. No, my that's Kim. the name of my new podcast. Just I'm Kim. just starting. Just Kim. Right? Just Ew. Kim. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we have a really special guest because... This guest, for lack of a better term, is my mentor. I'll try not to get too emotional because I really love this person. His name is Jack Lorenz. Now, Jack was born in Long Island. He was the eldest of five kids, and he moved to Los Angeles when he was 12 years old. And he has a long history of not only just taking care of his family and friends, but a long history of taking care of a lot of people in our community. He is instrumental in my life uh, and he has helped me through a lot of, not obstacles, but just a lot of, uh, you know, bumps in the road for me. And I really, really care for him greatly. And he has an amazing story to tell. So everybody, please welcome Jack Lorenz to the podcast. Hi, everybody. (laughs) Happy to be here. Hey, Jack Lorenz. (laughs) Okay, so you were born in Long Island. You're the oldest of five. You moved to L.A. when you were 12 years old. Yep. Let's tell everybody what his his role is now. Well, why don't you tell us what your role is now? My role is I'm the Director of Development and Communications for the Alliance for Housing and Healing, and we provide housing and support services for chronically homeless people who have mental health issues and HIV and AIDS. Which is... So important. It's a it's a charity that I hold near and dear to my heart as well. And in this new year, you know, I know a lot of people have a lot of resolutions they'd like to make and some, you know, maybe thinking about giving back to their communities and the people who are less fortunate. I know that light for me was turned on uh, during my time with Madonna when a lot of of my peers would come up to me and say you've changed my life the way you just expressed yourself and was comfortable in your skin really changed my life and that really of course humbled me and i was so grateful for that to happen that it really woke up this this vibration that i can do something for somebody else you know that is the focus here and that is actually a big part of jack's story because he is so involved with giving back to the community, AIDS prevention, AIDS education. And we're going to talk to him today about just his journey on how he got here. I want to start and just touch on this idea that you being the oldest 
of five children and your parents passed away earlier on in your life that you've had this caring about other people. Do you find that to be so? Probably. Um, my folks were really nice people, but they probably should not have been parents. Why do you say that? Because mm. <laughs> they didn't know how to take, they had five kids and they didn't really know how to take care of them. And they had their own issues that they were dealing with that, um, prevented them from focusing on the issues that their kids were having growing up. And so I think being the oldest as each one came along, I just got in the habit of taking care of them when my folks weren't able to do that. And I don't know that I actually was intentional or thought about it. I think, and I was talking to you a little bit about this earlier, I think that that is kind of ha what happened um, during the AIDS epidemic was that as young men, none of us set out to take care of everybody, but we didn't have any choice because nobody was taking care of, the, uh, of us. And so I know that when I was 26 years old at one point, I remember having like five or six different healthcare power of attorney for people, wow. which is like, and I, I, you know, I have 26 year olds that work for me today and I'm like, I'm not sure that they can get my Starbucks order right. <laughs> It's, yeah. <laughs> and to think that at the time we had that we had like we were just we were the ones that you know turned up the morphine we were the ones that decided when we were taking them home from the hospital there was no more treatments right because they were not well enough to make those decisions so do you think that guys who are that age today have the same responsibility that you had when you were quote-unquote turning up the morphine for your friends I don't think they have the same responsibility, and I hope they never do. I hope they get to be have a really wonderful, exciting, fun youth. I, do, I don't think they should be burdened by having to make sure that their friends die with dignity and die in, in, a, in a place that's safe and comfortable. I think that they should be able to have wonderful, great times. My dream, the reason that I do the work that I do today is that, that I leave this planet to an AIDS-free generation so that nobody ever has to re do what we had to do or remember the shame or the pain or the stigma or all the stuff that went with it. My dream is that nobody ever has to even know about that, which, so, which is why I do the work that I do today. Your mom passed away from MS. That must have been really hard for you because you were taking care of her towards the end of her life, yeah? Yeah, so my mother was on hospice care for 15 years. Wow. Woo! <laughs> so <laughs> she was fighting. She's like, it's really it's really a technicality in the Medicare system is that it has to be renewed every year in order for you to provide palliative care because when my mom was diagnosed with it, it was what they refer to as a diagnosis of elimination. Today they have really tests that you know for sure you have MS. Right. But in those days you would just keep saying, well, she doesn't have this. We can prove that she doesn't have this. And well, the last disease standing was multiple sclerosis. So, And there were no treatments to speak of. So really the only thing that they tried to do was keep people comfortable and then, and that's really palliative care. But, um, I'm really fortunate. I have three sisters and a brother and we all kind of divided up the responsibilities. Fortunately, we're all pretty good earners. And so we were able, she was pretty comfortable. She never had to worry about money or, um, we kept her in her home the whole time. We had, um, people that took care of her and, and she had seven grandchildren and they used to love to come over and one of the kind of fun things about being um, disabled is that you have all kinds of equipment like wheelchairs and um, ramps and um, s slings that they lift you in and out of the bed wow and grandkids love that stuff they <laughs> love oh my the walkers they and my mother used to just love to watch them ride around on her like electric scooter and little, yeah we would bring her to the garage and the kids would play on all the toys so oh yeah yeah it's really good fun 
I was in the hospital for 21 days when I was seven, and it was that was the best. They would just let us ride the wheelchairs through the halls and take the gurneys. And, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. That stuff is fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I know, crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, but they used to that love to go visit grandma. Let's go visit grandma. Let's see if we can get the crank thing. <laughs> now lift me. Now lift me. Exactly. That is uh, very very interesting. So we want. I want to segue into your college because you went to Cal State Northridge. I did. I grew up out in Northridge, out in the valley, and went to Cal State Northridge. And you became a VP of three of the biggest studios in Hollywood. How did, was that ever in like your trajectory? Like in college, did you ever say to yourself, I'm going to become VP of a studio one day? No, not at all. I had no interest in that at all. I kind of very fortunately fell into it. I, um, I was a bartender to put myself through college and the guy that owned the bar and grill, it was a nice place in Beverly Hills. And the fellow that owned it was an entertainment attorney, a pretty high profile entertainment attorney. And he had married a young woman who wanted to be an actress. And so he and some of his buddies decided they would put together a little production company. And he said to me, because I had just finished college, he said, would you be interested in going to work for this company for me? Because I'd kind of like to have somebody on the inside keeping an eye on my money because the people that are going to be running it, I don't really know. It wasn't like he didn't trust them, but he just wanted somebody to have have his back. And so I said, yeah, sure. You know, I didn't have anything to do. And so I figured why not? And it turned out that I was pretty good at it and I enjoyed it and it was fun. And this is a pretty small town. And so there's not a lot of people that work consistently. And I was fortunate enough to kind of wind up with a bunch of guys that worked a lot and they continued to hire me. And then I caught the attention of a studio executive once and he hired me. And once you're kind of, once you're in the studio system, it's a really tiny world. And so fortunately for me, I was able to just stay in that system until I didn't want to do it anymore. And why didn't you want it? What, what made you leave? For me, unless you really love it, it's a very challenging business. I was the head of um, feature production, and so there's only a handful of um, people that are actually the head of feature production at any given time, and so, but there's and lots of people that want that job. Right. And so the stress of it, um, uh, you know, my fingernails were bleeding, and I was always stopping at the restroom on the way to work, and just a million, it manifested physically because of the stress. And, you know, it's high pressure. You know, when you're spending $100 million making a movie and things don't go well, it's frightening. And um, I didn't love it. Yeah. I just didn't love it. And it was taking a toll on my emotional and spiritual and mental and physical health. And so I was working at um, Sony at the time, and the... Um, Peter, Peter Goober, I was working for Peter Goober, and they um, chose not to renew his contract. And fortunately for me, he had just renewed he had just renewed my contract for three years. And so everybody in Hollywood has this dream of getting bought out of a contract. Oh. <laughs> and so I just signed this contract for three years. And so, you know, when the when regime changes, everybody goes. And so I was let go, and they had to pay me off. And so. I went to grad. That's when I went to graduate school. You got bought out of a three-year contract, so they had to pay you for all of those years. In one lump sum. Yeah. Wow. And you're like, you know what? I really, this is disrespectful. I don't really want to, I don't know. You guys need to make this right. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have to come up with a little more money. Yeah. (laughs) Meanwhile, you're like, yeah. See ya. (laughs) 
what was the first big studio that you worked in? Because it wasn't studio uh, Sony, right? It was Sony was last. Sony was last. The first um, independent studio I worked for was a little company called Vestron, and Vestron is best known for um, a movie called Dirty Dancing. Oh. I did all of their European productions, and I got to work with um, people like Ken Russell, who. Um, it was just a really wild cult favorite of many, many people. And yeah. I fell in love with Ken Russell and the movies that he made. And we made some really fun movies with Ken Russell. And so I, I, I developed a nice, and that's kind of where I developed my um, reputation was that I had a reputation for um, being really good with international productions. And so most of my work after Vestron was in international um, co-productions and financing. And I understood government um, regulations internationally and, so I spent a fair amount of time outside the country doing movies. So this is like a true Hollywood story. You're, you're working as a bartender. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you get hired to take care of your boss's company. And then yeah. it grows from there. Mm -hmm. That learning curve must have been crazy. Was that, I mean, how did you get into learning how to deal with these films, these big, yeah. big films? Fortunately, the first when I first started to do it, they were very small budget films. And so, you know, a small budget film is not any different from a big budget film. There's still cameras and lights and actors and it's all the same. But on a small scale, you really get the opportunity to understand what it all does. And the risk is not as high and the tension is not as high. It's a, it's a, it's a more um, exciting and fun atmosphere because a lot of people, are, they, this is their first job and it's very exciting. And so I had the opportunity to learn it in a... Um, I don't want to say a relaxed environment, but in an, in, a, in an opportunity that provided for mistakes. Um, you know, when you're at a studio, there's not room for mistakes. There's just, especially now because they're corporate owned and the stakes are very high. Yeah. I mean, so from Vestron, you went to... Universal. Universal. Yeah. How was that? Yeah, that was fun. Um, that was my first time that I had a job on a lot. And um, when, <laughs> when it wasn't really busy, me and my team, would um, we would call up the, um, the amusement park and have them send down a, uh, a car, you know, one of the um, tour cars. Right. And, and, and they would disconnect it from the thing and we would just go riding around on, the, on all the rides at Universal all day long if there was nothing going on. It was pretty fun. I love that. <laughs> I could just imagine <clears throat> you riding around in a car, going to Universal, and riding on rides because that's what I would do. It were, yeah. Yeah, it was well, fun. What else to do? Let's listen. It's research. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. We need to fun. know what's, you know, what our company is doing. Yeah. How long were you at um, Universal? I think I was at Universal for probably three years, three or four years. And then from Universal, I went to Disney. And Disney, I went when I went to Disney, that was at a really exciting time. That was when Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg had just come on board. So it was a very, very exciting time. And um, Bette Midler's career was revived. And a lot, of, uh, a lot of exciting things were happening at the time. What films did you work on at uh, Disney? Um, uh, the Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Oh, really? Um, so none of the animation stuff. Oh no, I didn't work in any animation ever. I didn't know. I didn't. I don't know the animation world. Which is funny when you say that because I forget whenever I would tell people I worked at Disney, they would like, oh, Mickey Mouse. I'm like, no, Bette Midler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> different, different division. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Most. Of, I know. I 
uh, thought that as well. I was like, oh, wow, he worked at Disney? He yeah. must have done whatever Disney animation movie there was. Yeah, but- no, I never worked in animation. I don't think I've ever, even ever been in the animation building. But because live action is the is is the majority of the films that they do anyway. Yeah. Oh, I didn't and know the that. Cr- Wasn't that Julianne Moore's like yes. breakout role, uh-huh. right? Yeah. yeah. And Curtis Hansen has it was the director who's yeah, a wonderful fantastic. guy. Yeah. Yeah. He passed away a couple of years ago. He was a great yes. guy. Yes. He was a lovely guy. Yeah. So that was see, that was a really exciting time. So Curtis Hansen was a really talented director who had never quite made it. And so like when we would go on location scouts, I would have to like lend him money to buy gas to fill up his car <laughs> to get to the airport. Wow. And then you know, so it was so crazy because he didn't have any money. I had to like give him gas money to get to the airport and then he'd step into a first class seat on the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like that's Hollywood. That's so, it's so Hollywood. That's yeah. how, how Hollywood is because, you know, his, his the agent had negotiated first class travel, which is not unusual for a director. Right. That's what they get. But, you know, like when you're in pre-production, they're really not paying you yet because until it's greenlit, most people don't get paid. Yeah, people, you're still think, working. Yeah, I don't think people know that like directors and producers and well, writers are actually usually getting paid, but most of the time directors and producers until a project gets what's called greenlit officially moving into production they're not getting paid their deals may be very wonderful and lucrative but no money actually exchanges hands until the budget is locked and right. locations and the talent is hired yes yeah, wow. so they're on that first class flight like let, let me load up on on the yeah. shrimp cocktail yeah. uh-huh yeah more nuts <laughs> more nuts <laughs> yeah load up on shrimp cocktail yeah and Curtis had this old Thunderbird, like not a fancy one either, one of the like the like late seventies, just like a big old loud car. Right, you're like, oh, there goes Curtis. Yeah. <laughs> that, that old school that smoke is blowing. Well, when lot. I was in high school, I was a parking lot attendant. And I worked at a place called the Smokehouse, and the Captain and Tennille were the lounge act. Remember the Captain and Tennille? <gasps> yes. yes. So the Captain and Tennille, and they had this old Volkswagen, and we used to have to um, push it down the hill, and the Captain would pop the clutch, and then, <laughs> and then Tony would run down Ventura Boulevard and jump in the oh car. That is amazing. Uh-huh. Wait, is it the Smokehouse? It's like uh, in um, Burbank? Well, there's one in Burbank, but there was the one that I worked at was in Encino. It's not there anymore. Okay, yeah. Because yeah. there's one right by Warner Brothers, yes, right? Yeah, yeah across yeah. the Smokehouse, yeah. But they were the lounge act, and that's where they got... Um, they broke out from the lounge... Because the restaurant never did any business, but the lounge was always packed. Right. Because the captain and Tennille were the act. I got my hair cut like her when I was like in the third grade. Uh-huh. I was like, I'm, I need that Tennille cut. Yeah, Tony Tennille. Yeah, yeah. that little like page boy. Yeah. Remember I that? live. I had a secret crush on the captain. Uh-huh. <laughs> Daryl Dragon. That was wow. his name, And they wouldn't let us as... Um, they tone the captain and Tennille weren't allowed to eat in the restaurant neither were any of us so we would sit out in the back and they would send out garlic toast and and um cokes and that's what we would eat wow isn't it interesting that you know you people think it's just like as you said so many people are just like looking over your shoulder wanting that job like being vp of a studio and you imagine like it's going to be fantastic and change your life and really the fun the fun times are those times when you're like yeah. Pushing that Volkswagen yeah. Yeah. down Pop, the clutch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Eating garlic toast, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. Now, was this before Ten- uh, Captain and Tanu were like big, big? Yeah, or yeah. After? So they left, when they left there, it's because they got a recording contract. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, and that was the last time they ever had to do those kind of, he never saw that Volkswagen again. Oh, I'm sure not. And then you ended up at Sony. Sony, yeah, with Goober. You were there and for a long were, time. That's where, that's where I was there for a long time, yeah. What movies did you do over there? Um, Donnie Brasco. Oh, I love that. That's good. Yes. Seven years in Tibet. Oh yeah. I know what you did last summer. Oh, one of the greats. Yeah. 
It is a cult um, horror film. Yes, it's a cult classic. Yeah, that's so something. towards the end of that run at Sony, mm-hmm. are you feeling within yourself a change like this is not for me anymore oh yeah for probably before i went to sony to oh yeah honest. yeah but um you know it's it's very seductive you know the perks and the money and it's not all bad it's not all bad by a long shot right. you know and it's a really and you know and working like some of the directors that i got to work with some of the writers some of the performers super talented we, um did a movie called which didn't do very well but i actually liked a lot it was called the deep end of the ocean with michelle pfeiffer mm-hmm. it was a really great she's she's an amazing person and yeah the director of that uli, uli grossbard was a wonderful guy and um so to have the opportunity to work with these wildly creative people, and you know, it's interesting when they're actually at work, they're not like that persona that you read about or right. that diva or peculiar. They're really there to do their work. So that was really fun. I used to love to be on the set. That would that always made me happy. Yeah, the relationships, I think, yeah. are the... Mm-hmm. But actually the watching best. the creative process was very exciting. Right. Yeah. What was your title at this point? Was it the same through all three no, studios? No, at, at Disney, at, at Sony, I was the executive vice president of production. Wow. Yeah. So and right what does the that entail? So my responsibility was to um, essentially to make all the, get all the movies made. Oh. My job was to once a, once a project was once a script was decided on, they would say, okay, so who's go- and and it's not nothing's ever that clean in Hollywood. A script always has attachments to it, and so you have to figure out well if this producer is attached, then what kind of director will they work with, and what kind of cast, and it's so and it's not like you do it alone. There's a whole team of people and everybody, but ultimately you're the one who has to sign off on that budget and say we're we can make this movie with these people in this location in this number of days for this amount of money. Right, and so then if, you're held to, and then yeah, that's any heads roll if you don't do that. One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't even know that. Wow, yeah. that's crazy. Oh yeah, a budget sheet of a movie has a lot of names on it. So the pressure, just a little bit of yeah. pressure. Yeah, yeah. It must have been crazy at that point. Well, it got there. Yeah, yeah. I guess doing it for so long too. It's like yeah, yeah. So you were running out of. <laughs> perpetual steam well since i had never wanted to do it right I, and I, I just got good at it when it became clear that it wasn't about the creative process or really about the making of the movies any me well, there was a lot of other stuff i'm not a terribly political animal by nature i tend to struggle when situations um aren't like clear and clean so um and that's not any different anywhere i mean i work for a really wonderful nonprofit, but you still it's still political Everybody has their own agenda, not necessarily like I have an agenda, but doesn't mean that's a bad agenda, but everybody has, nobody's are exactly the same. Right. So there was just, it just, it just became physically, it was taking a toll on me, literally physically taking a toll on me. And so I knew, and, and when you, and when you get bought out, you have the luxury of figuring out what you want to do. And fortunately by that time I had been with John, I was married at the time. He was in the process of finishing up a film that he had self-financed or a small, a small film. And so when I finished at Sony, we finished the film and then we took it on, t- took it around the United States. And literally, I would carry the reels into the projection booth. We would travel, <laughs> we traveled all around the country to all these different. It was a, lit- it was a mainstream movie. Cool. That's um, awesome. Yeah. It was very exciting. And so I got to actually watch the movie with audiences, understand what audiences liked, what they didn't like. We would have Q and A's in every city. Um, and it won a ton of awards. It won a ton of awards. It was a very, it was it was a it was a really timely film. It's still timely. It deals with um, uh, conditions at the U.S.-Mexico border and the treatment of migrants. And wow. so, 
when we were finished with that film, I realized that maybe I didn't want to give up film. I wanted to give up film. I wanted to do, do film in a different way. And so we kind of um, organically transisted from that film to doing a series of documentaries, mostly focusing on the fair and appropriate treatment of migrants. Um, and we did about four or five documentaries. And, um, and we toured um, the United States with them. And John, especially, he went to universities and he um, ultimately made it, became a very successful documentarian and wound up becoming a very successful um, investigative journalist. And since, um, and in the past five years, he's won six Emmys doing that. So, yep. yeah, so he's done very, very well. He's been, and it's been a very exciting thing to watch for him. Yes. I mean, just to clarify for our listeners, he's talking about John Frey, who will also be on the podcast. <laughs> John Carlos Frey. Oh, John Carlos Frey. Yes. Um, who's also dear friend and um, I look forward to his interview because his story is yeah, amazing as yeah. well. Yeah, he's got a great story and he does extraordinary work. Oh yeah. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. Now, without sounding ageist, what age are you when you are leaving Sony because you go back to school? Yeah, um, I was 50. We just spoke to Vincent Castellanos uh, on an earlier podcast, and he was at a point in his life where his career yeah. was changing, and he went back to school um, as well. What was that like for you going back to, you know, quote unquote, school? It was hard. I mean, that first semester in graduate school, you know, I'd been re used to reading, you know, People magazine, and, <laughs> and you know, and so... And um, you have to read at least a book a week and research and all that. But I really loved the idea of learning and it really excited me. It's in, um, and so once that first semester, and it was more about, um, it wasn't so much about the content or even the workload, it was developing the habits of a student, student right. habits, which have to be developed. And so once I got that on under my belt, then actually the rest of the three years was really great. And what, do you, what were you getting your master's in? In humanities. Okay. Which is really yeah. a combination of philosophy and history and social right. studies. How did you think you were going to use that? What capacity? I was pretty sure that I was going to be able to use it to do what I do today. That was specifically why I took, took that, because I knew that it would, um, for your listeners, I'm a white guy. I'm about as 100% white. I just got my 23 and me back. I'm 100% <laughs> Northwestern <laughs> European. There's not a drop of anything but whiteness in me. And so I, my view of the world was not healthy or appropriate. Um, and so going back to graduate school and especially getting a degree in humanities, understanding philosophy and looking at the world in a whole different way. And especially with John and doing the stuff with immigrants, I began to see uh, my my thesis was on white privilege. Oh, okay. So I don't think that I had even even understood what white privilege was prior to going to graduate school. To be honest with you, if somebody right. asked me, I would have said, "Well, no, I I have a lot of black friends. I have a lot of Mexican friends, and right. that's not what that's not mean. it. That's not yes. It. <laughs> so yeah, and and the first time that I the light bulb went on that I really understood what white privilege was. I was living over here in Hancock Park and going to graduate school at Northridge. And so um, when I would have to drive in rush hour, I would always have to use the restroom as soon as I got off the freeway. And there was a restroom at a gas station at Nordoff and the 405. And the sign on the door said, um, restroom said, for customers only. 
and I never ever bought gas there and they always gave me the key. Right. And I always watched unintentionally if an African American or a Latino came in and said, may I use the restroom? They would say no. Oof. Oof. And so I understood that was how I went, oh, that's what this means. Right. I get to use a restroom and you don't. It was like painfully shocking. Yeah. It was finally I went, oh, now I understand why just because we have equal rights or because affirmative action, none of that matters. No, it's those little injustices all the time yeah. that people, you're not even aware of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that people just l- live with, right? Right. Well, yeah, because you have no choice. I mean, right. and a lot of people are like, well, now white privilege doesn't exist. There's this, there's this post, someone posted in one of my Facebook groups of this woman who w- went to see this play. It was called, a, uh, I think the play is actually called The Slave Play. And she just got up during the Q&A. She had had enough. She got really uh, upset and was just yelling at the playwright and saying, this is racist and I'm so tired of white people this and white people that. You know, I had to work hard and I'm a single mom and I haven't had it easy. It's just that, it's like, listen, listen, we we know that narrative. Yes, it's probably true. And you having your ancestors come from Ireland, it's like, we know that narrative. It's like my grandfather, you know, insert Russian, Irish, Italian, they came here and they were immigrants and they were treated terribly and they had to work as a bricklayer or whatever. And they, you know, it was hard work and they didn't get anything easy. It's like, yes. So we can still recognize that that was problematic and still realize that, you know, it still exists for black people, people of color today. Like it doesn't minimize, you know, doesn't diminish the fact that that happened, but you know, it's wild. That is, that is wild. That is definitely wild. But it's awesome that you were open enough, aware enough to. I think education, travel and education. I, and I shouldn't say that I wasn't aware of what white privilege is because I had the good fortune to travel a lot in, in the, in, when I was a studio executive and I did movies in Sri Lanka and India and Germany, France, all over, literally all over the world. And so I really had a sense of other cultures and especially other governments and cultures. So I, I wouldn't say that I was closed to it, but I certainly was isolated from the negative impacts of it. Right. Um, and, but, um, but, Actually, the combination of travel and education, I think, has really given me the opportunity to develop a sense of empathy that I don't know that I ever would have had had I not. Even even going through the AIDS, all the guys that I knew were white yes. died. There were none. And, and, you know, today, the majority of the, 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 the highest rate of people that are newly infected are young men of color. That's right. 50% of young African-American men who have sex with men will become infected with HIV. One in two. Oh, That's a staggering it's a, number. It's, yeah, devastating. That, it's a devastating number. Yeah. And so we have a ton of work to do. Absolutely. To communities that are already, you know, which is, which is yeah. yeah. Which is why it's so important for me personally, because there were people stepped up and took care of us. At some point, there were straight people, women who stepped up and started to help us and take care of us. Right. And I believe that it's there. We gay white men have a moral imperative to take care of the populations that are now suffering from it because somebody stood up and took care of us. It took us a long while to get that attention, but people did help us. Yes. We didn't do it alone. And right. so I think that it's we do have that moral imperative that we have got to help those people who who don't have the ability. You know, um 
especially like young trans women. Yes. Young trans women have no relationship to the healthcare system. They just don't. So, you know, their idea of a doctor visit is when, you know, uh, a John beats them up and they wind up in the emergency room. And then they might get some tests and find out if something's going on. So um, one of the first jobs that I had in a nonprofit after I finished graduate school was working for Equality California. Yeah, because graduate school and realizing your white quote-unquote white privilege really changed I mean it really changed your life oh for and sure it sent yeah. You, yeah right tell us about that so Equality California is the by nature of the fact that we're the largest state in the, in the union the Equality California is the largest uh, LGBT civil rights organization in the United States in statewide um, you know the um, HRC is the largest national but Equality California is the largest statewide organization and um I really learned a lot more about, um, especially the legislative process and how um, how communities need to ban- how 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 community comes together, and 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 in, initiates change. And but here again, one more time, Equality California was a bunch of gay white guys. Make no mistake, all the changes that came about were because of gay white guys and gay white guys with money. Thank God for them because they were they gave us the ability to make the change. But the great news about Equality California is that although the gay white guys with the money funded it, they also had the foresight to know that the populations that needed help didn't look like them anymore and that we needed and that legislation really needed to affect them. But one of the first I was really fortunate when I worked at Equality California was when the Affordable Care Act just had come online and one of the programs that I initiated was um, we got a grant from the California Endowment to enroll marginalized LGBT people in the Affordable Care Act. And so I actually became a what I call a certified enrollment counselor. And I would go to um, every, I don't know if they still do it, but, but across the street from Target behind the um, cement factory on La Brea, yeah. every Wednesday night, the um, West Hollywood Food Bank would show up and they would bring a meal. And the UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine would show up with medical students and all the homeless people in the area would show up and they would get triaged for medical care and they would get a meal. And I would be there with a laptop enrolling them in um, getting them health insurance. And most of them were trans women, young trans women. Yes. And so introducing them to the healthcare system and actually most of them were homeless. So all of their... Um, I would put our office address as their address, and then once we would enroll them, then the packages would come to my office, and then the next week or the week after, I would go, I would be back enrolling other people, but I would have packets, and the look of excitement on some of these young trans women's faces when they like had an insurance card, Yeah. a lot of times they didn't wind up doing it because they became to a million different reasons, but the idea... That was, that was my question. Did you meet resistance <clears throat> in the beginning because just of, I don't want to say ignorance, but maybe fear? As a rule, the people that we were uh, um, enrolling were homeless. Yes. And so homeless people are not welcome anywhere, in a doctor's office, in an emergency room. I don't want to say that medical people don't care, but you know, the doctor's offices that you and I go to are not conducive to homeless people coming in with all their bags. In the, right. That just doesn't, it doesn't work, they feel. And one of the great challenges of being homeless, if you have your faculties about you, is even if you have the ability to go like to Social Security or go on a job interview, what do you do with your stuff? If you leave it, you're going, anything that's of value is going to be gone when you come out. Right. So it really prevents people from doing a lot of the things, just holding on to their stuff, especially women. You know, women are incredibly high risk. Um, homeless women are incredibly high risk for all sorts of things. And a lot of times, um, a lot of times you'll think you see homeless people and you hear the anecdotal stories about, well, they're drug addicts and they're alcoholics. And the truth is, is that they weren't drug addicts and alcoholics and wound up homeless. They became homeless. And in order to deal with the trauma, they started drinking. And especially women, it's really dangerous to sleep at night. 
so they have to stay awake so they don't get hurt and their stuff doesn't get stolen and they do meth to stay oh, awake God. and that starts the whole cycle god. what a vicious my yeah. god so what that, a vicious cycle so you have all of that stuff um compounding their ability to access health care which is why when the medical school would come and triage they would line up and the those medical students were just awesome you know, and these people like have really nasty conditions and those kids just took such, and they preferred it because it was on the street. Right. And they could, and their stuff was there. Right. And it was familiar. They yeah. didn't have to go to this foreign doctor's office and get looked at, you but, know, but some of them who were, in a bad um, way. who had their ability to take care of themselves were very excited that they could, cause, um, uh, they could, they could go to a clinic now cause there are clinics for people who, um, may not fit into what was referred to as a mainstream medical practice right. or clinics that are very appropriate for them. And so they, and they feel safe in the clinics. And so that was very exciting because they could have present an insurance card and get some, get some of the care that they needed. How long were you at Equality California? I think for five years. Satisfying work. It was very exciting. It was a very exciting time. It was right after Prop 8. We had lost Prop 8. So it was a very, um, it was a very discouraging time, but it was also interesting because legislatively, California has always been incredibly progressive, but at the ballot box, it's always been challenged. You know, Pete Wilson and, you know, his immigrant bashing and, um, you know, uh, Prop 8. So it's uh, the proposition, the way the propositions work in California have always been challenging for the other. It's, um, but legislatively, it's always been very progressive. And this satisfying work is definitely a 360 from the stressful time that you had at the studios. That must have been one, a relief and more of, would you say, a calling? I, I think that it became clear to me what my path was. I don't think that I have ever like veered from it, to be honest with you. After I comprehended what white privilege was, I knew that I was never going to go back to doing something normal again. Right. <laughs> right. That wasn't a viable option for me. That moment, you know, that moment must have been, you know, a, a, a strong one because you are one of the most selfless uh, people that I know. Yeah, but, you know, I, I appreciate that. And that's very flattering. But the truth is, is that it gives me great joy. Right. If it didn't give me joy, I wouldn't do it. I get a lot out of it. It makes me very happy. I feel very good. Um, so I don't feel like it's selfless because I, it, it fills me. Right. I, it's, it's a very joyful thing for me to be of service and to help, which isn't to say that I don't, I, I'm here to tell you that I drive 45 minutes to work every day and it devastates me to see how many homeless people there are on the streets. It just devastates me. It seems so overwhelmingly, it just seems like almost impossible. I mean, just on my, just driving here, yeah. this camp that has probably quadrupled in size in the past week that they keep sweeping them you know and that's just going to your point earlier it's like if they don't have all their stuff they come and they sweep they get rid of everything these camp and then they go away and then they come back mm -hmm. and just right off on willoughby on the way here yeah i live in hollywood so all over california for anyone yeah. you know if you if our listeners if you are not in california you haven't been here i mean you come here it's shocking it's everywhere Fifty-five thousand homeless people in los angeles county tonight unreal and the number of lgbt um, we had a 77 percent increase in the number of homeless people with hiv and aids over yes. the past year 77 percent increase that's, that's staggering that's yeah. a staggering homeless, staggering you number compliant you can't take your meds right it's the last thing on your mind you got to figure out a place to eat Go to the bathroom, sleep. Right. Which brings us to your latest endeavor. You are you work for the Alliance of, for Housing and Healing. What is your position there? 
So at the Alliance for Housing and Healing, I'm responsible for all of our fundraising and all of our communications. And um, we are a $12 million a year agency, so I'm kind of responsible for coming up with a million bucks a month. And what does the agency do? What is the main? We provide housing. So we actually have group homes where we provide 24-7 care for those who are too sick to take care of themselves. We have apartments. Um, we have crisis beds. We have transitional beds. We have about 160 apartments. I think we have 75 transitional beds. And by transitional beds, what I mean is that these are... Um, they're still they're 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 still group homes, but that people don't require any care. Um, they just need a place to sleep, and we provide them. We have a lot of um, duplexes that have like four, five, six, even up to eight bedrooms, and usually one or two. It's usually two people in a room, and there's a very there's a very practical reason to that, and it's it's kind of after the sober living model. It encourages people to do the work to get their own place, because if you share if you have a roommate, you, you always want your own place. And so we also subscribe to the scattered site model. Since all of our clients have HIV and AIDS or AIDS and have mental health issues, we don't have any one building so people can't say, oh, that's the AIDS building. Oh, that's right. the crazy building. Right, right. We have two or three apartments in, in units all in buildings all over LA County. And so it's also good for the clients because, you know, if you're in a building full of other mentally ill people, you get the opportunity to manifest your mental illness. If you're, if you're in a mainstream building, um, you tend to behave a little bit better and it helps to integrate you more quickly. Okay. So the scattered site model is a model that we use, and we're also a housing first model, which means that there is no barrier to entry for you. So if you're if you're a, if you're a daily heroin user, that's okay with us. What we want you to do is get off the streets and not transmit the virus. And if we can get you to not transmit the virus and get you into a situation where you're feeling comfortable and safe, then maybe you maybe you'll take a look at your heroin addiction, and we can help you with that. Because the idea is that with housing and with a place to stay, a person is more apt to taking care of themselves, yeah. taking their meds and dealing with the quote unquote issues that they're dealing yeah. with while, they're, while they were on the street. Housing is the most important social determinant of health. Nothing is more important than housing in terms of health. Yeah, because how can go to the bathroom? How can you, like, your hygiene, everything is everything. so dependent yeah. on... Housing is the most important thing. And how do people come to you? Do they go, are they referred through other agencies? They're referred how through other agencies. We've been around for over 30 years, so people know about us. Um, many of our, ma the majority of our funding is grants from the government, so the government has, um, they, have, they have systems in place to refer people to us. So there's never a shortage of clients. Yes. How many clients do you think you have today? 2,000. 2,000. Yeah. And so those 2,000, there are 2,000 people that we're helping every month or every year. And they, you know, they roll in, they roll out. Right. But it's 2,000. And a lot of the clients that we have today are people who we have um, been helping for many, many years. Or there are also people that we um, have prevented from falling into homelessness because they are, um, they may or may not have the ability to maintain all of their um, expenses. So they're what they refer to as their housing, un they're unstable, they're ha unstably housed. And by that we mean, so maybe they're able to pay their rent, but th not their utilities. So I don't know about you, but when I was, a, when I was in like college, you know, if you didn't have enough money, you didn't pay your utilities for a few months. And then what happens? Well, they shut them off and then you go down and you pay the bill. Right. But if you are, uh, if you're on a fixed income, so what happens? So you don't pay the bill, you get the power turned off and then you pay, go and pay the utilities, but then there's not enough money for the rent. 
and so eventually you get evicted. So what we do is we step into situations like that and we'll bring you current on your utilities and we'll continue to pay you your utilities so that you don't lose that apart so we don't lose that apartment to market rents. Um, and so and it's much less expensive and it's much better to keep you housed than to allow you to become homeless because that's a very expensive and very time consuming process to get you back. Exactly. And it's something just like that simple. People think like, oh, you know, this could never happen to me. It's like, no, it, it's a lot of people are just one paycheck or yeah, one. No, yeah. And nobody winds up homeless overnight. You're not no. like sitting in a place like this and then the next street you're on the street. It's a very slow. So you don't pay your rent. You wind up getting evicted and then you go stay with your sister and then your sister. And then it's like you feel like, oh, I can't stay with my sister anymore. I'm going to go stay with my friend. And then I go stay with my friend and I and then I get a job, but I can't quite get enough money to um, get a deposit. And then the transmission on my car breaks and the money that I was saving for a deposit. I have to go do that. And the next thing I know, like there's this one night when I have not made plans with like the friend or the sister, and oh, I'll just sleep in the car. And then I sleep in the car and then I start getting the habit of sleeping in the car. And then I stay, and then the car breaks down and I don't, and it just parked and it's where I live now. Yeah, and, and you're getting parking tickets. And you're getting and, parking yeah. tickets. And then one day you go to find a bathroom and you come back and the car is gone because it's been towed because there are too many, t- too many tickets. Right. It's, that's a, it's not uncommon at all. And how are, and you, Especially now when you're seeing rent prices just mm-hmm. soaring. I mean, in the past 20 years, it's probably been unlike anything I've ever seen. I mean, I yeah, was born and raised st- here. Yeah. So are you seeing the effects of that? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So an average one-bedroom apartment in Los Angeles County today is $2,300 a month. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, it's absurd. Yeah. And how, you know, for the the average person, it's not like... Salaries have kept pace with that. No, uh-uh, not at so all. So a lot of these people, you think, oh, you know, they're not working. We'll just get them a job. Some people are working, and they end well, up homeless. Well, there's lots of working poor, <laughs> homeless poor people. Yeah. Lots of them, yeah, who are living in shelters or on the streets and just have figured out a way, and they have everything in a backpack, and they go and they take a shower at the gym. You know, they, get a, they make enough money to, like, do stuff. They just don't have enough money to get a house. Yes. And this is not just a gay guy or a single woman. These are fam. You know, these are families. Oh, there are families. Yeah, most of our, not most, but many of our um, apartments are, are families. Which brings me to that this this next statement question because this is not just at this point, right? This is not just what was called the gay disease, right? Now this is affects men. It affects yeah. women and inevitably this is now affecting whole families Mm -hmm. and so these are the people that are coming to you not just gay men oh no no gay men are no longer the majority of of the newly infected people today wow that's that's interesting yeah are people becoming infected is it drug use is it it's still pretty much sex wow we one of our homes is a group home for women and children and and i'm i'm really grateful that our um our agency provides services for undocumented people we know some agencies don't have that luxury because of the way their funding streams work but we we are able to provide services to undocumented people and the majority of the women in our group in the home for women and children are undocumented latinas whose husbands actually infected them and then once they found out that they were infected they threw them out oh god and the and the guy and the the husbands that infected them got that through either sex with men or with a prostitute or right and so how do you deal with prevention education like just getting people not you know to, to to use a condom Right. 
at the very least <laughs> you know come on folks because some of these people you know are traditionally their view is old-fashioned right most of these guys who infect their wives girlfriends don't use the condom because that's not in their nature culture right, right? so but as a gay is it that's not something that's gonna right that's yeah. not gonna happen gonna to me, me. Be- yeah because right. i'm straight right and you know whatever sex with a woman yes exactly and whatever happened you know that one day when i was drunk doesn't affect me because i'm straight so that ignorance is now affecting his wife his girlfriend and inevitably his his children oh absolutely yeah absolutely and we don't our our job is to take care of people once they're infected. We right. don't we don't we, we just don't have the capacity to do education that way. To be honest with you, yeah, our job is yeah. to our job is to help the people once once the damage has been done, so to speak. Right. But the the collateral damage of this disease for families is is pretty extensive. Most people aren't, think that you know it's like gay guys. It's it's not. We have a lot of families. And what's the average day for people who come? To the group homes or transitional housing is it yeah do they ever transition out they do absolutely um but our victories to be honest with you are small victories because most of our clients have mental health issues right that's the biggest challenge we face today hiv in and of itself is a manageable condition it's not really even a disease anymore it's a manageable condition you know one pill a day i have hiv i have i take one pill a day and i have I'm undetectable. I've never been sick a day in my life. I've never had any side effects. There's no reason for HIV to have any impact on my life at all, to be honest right. with you. And so the people in our group homes, more often than not, are uh, people who were uh, infected early in the epidemic and who may have taken um, a lot of the early medications were very harsh and yeah. people had all kinds of side effects. And, and the damage from the disease was irreparable and some of the damage from the early drugs was irreparable. So a lot of our residents have been there 10, 15, 20 years. And then there are those people who were homeless and became very sick because of the HIV. And once they're, um, you know, a year, maybe a year and a half, they're with us in one of the group homes and then they begin to get better. And then we transition them into, a, into an apartment on their own. Sometimes they're well enough to just go back to work and get a job and get their own apartment, or they move into what's our, you know, we what's called our, our permanent supportive housing. Um, we have a hundred employees; eighty-five of them are social workers. Okay. So um, every client is case managed. It's there are enough empty apartments and motel rooms in Los Angeles to house everybody right now. That's not a problem. The problem is once you house people, how do you, because once somebody's been homeless for 90 days, all bets are off. You don't need a bathroom anymore. You don't need electricity. You don't need a bank. You don't need a car. You don't need anything anymore. And so once you've developed that whole set of survival skills on the streets, it can take years to get somebody to come off the streets. Wow. Yeah, especially once if they have if they have some mental health issues, yeah, it can take a long time to get them off the streets. So it, you, I can, we can put them in apartments and motel rooms and all day long, but if they're not case managed, if they're not provided the resources to actually help them, it doesn't matter. Right. So case management is really the key to success, and that's where I think that's where we really make a difference is the case management. They are absolutely the heroes of the work that we do because they work with those clients. There are some clients who get a visit every single day. Yeah, and then there's some that get one every month, every couple of months. Right, and the, and so and I've become friendly with a lot of our clients through the because I, just because of the nature of the agency and, like we have, <laughs> we have one client right now who it took a couple of years to get him to come back off the streets and he's a lovely guy and he's doing really well. Um, but he can't sleep in his bed at night. He has a tent in the living room that he still sleeps in. 
I've heard those stories. People who come off the street and they have a bed and they sleep on the floor. They can't. Yeah. yeah. And for him, there's too much space and it's too unsafe. Right. Wow. Right. So he sleeps. So he can take a nap in the bedroom. He says, I can take a nap fine, but I can't go to bed at night and I still have to sleep in the tent. And he's like me. I mean, perfectly, com- perfectly conversational yeah. and fine. But he's still, you know, and he said, uh, he says every once in a while I try and I can do it, but he feels more comfortable in a tent. Wow. Got it. <laughs> got a little pup tent in the living room. Yeah. The conditioning uh, totally. that got him to that yeah. point, And so one right? of the other things is like, if you don't, um, we get you an apartment and like, since you haven't had utilities or electricity or anything, why would you spend the money to pay your electric bill when you can buy something fun or go to the movies. <laughs> right. Right. So one of the first things that our case managers do when they go into an apartment is flip the switch, check the stove. Is the gas on? Wow. Is the water working? Cause if you don't have that stuff for so long, you don't need it. Why would no. you just, it's like, that's crazy. Why would you, why would I pay for it? But never yeah, pay yeah, for it for it a long time. I'm going to go down to the dollar Chinese joint. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a whole re-education. To- yes. Yeah. Financial literacy, job training, psychotherapy, lots and lots and lots of psychotherapy. It's extraordinary. And you have all of that within the, yeah. the agency. That's that's the major thing. It's important. It does have to be a whole yeah, the per- supportive, support yeah. Oh, yeah. system. Yeah. yeah. Some hard numbers for our listeners out there really quickly for you. 37.9 million people live with HIV today. That's crazy. Is yeah. that worldwide? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 32 million people have died from this disease. 32 million. And out of the 37.9 million people who live with HIV today, 1.7 million are children. Wow. 1.7 are children. That is, that's beyond heartbreaking. 13.4 million people today do not have access to antiviral medications. And that's the key to the success of ending this epidemic is getting people on um, antiviral drugs or art. I want to close this by uh, talking about one of uh, your clients. Uh, It's a woman. Her name will not be mentioned, of course, uh, for her privacy. Um, We met her during... Our rehearsals for Best in Drag show. Oh, Desiree is perfectly happy. She loves to be known. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't want to. Yeah. You know, I didn't. You know, want to say her name. Yes, no, Desiree is a lovely person, yeah. and she is a perfect example of how one, she's not gay. No. <laughs> and her story was she was you know a successful businesswoman businesswoman yeah eight, successful businesswoman yeah, eight, eight nine years ago she was making 125 $150,000 a year and she says you know i would drive to work and i would see homeless people and i would say how does that happen mm. and it wasn't and her story is very much like what i was just talking about she hurt her back at work and um she had to go on disability and the house that she was living in she and her mom had bought together okay and um disability doesn't pay what your salary does right and well but as long as the mother was still alive and they could they could pay the mortgage and so the but then the mother passed away and so she didn't have enough money to pay the mortgage so then she lost she lost the house or had to sell the house and then she had to move into an apartment and it wasn't long before she was that girl or that woman she's you know she's in her late 50s she has children she has grandchildren she wound up for three and a half years living in the doorways of buildings in hollywood Wow. And she met a guy who said he was going to take care of her. And what he did was he gave her HIV. Oh, God. Yeah. Ugh. 
the stories are not that she's a straight white woman who's a mother and a grandmother yeah the stories are not that simple it's not as simple as oh i'm gay and flamboyant and i'm not caring about you know who my partner is boom i have aids that's this is what i'm trying to drive home here desiree was looking for somebody to protect her at night because she was because she needed women need to be protected at night on the streets of hollywood yes and that's what happened to her and she's thriving now she is yeah she's doing really great yeah yeah Oh my goodness! Yeah, she and I have lunch all. The, we have lunch together all the time. She's pretty funny. Ah, uh, Desiree. <laughs> yes. So, how do people get involved? How do people donate? You can donate to us by going to www.alliance a l l i a n c e h h dot org, and there's a donate button right on the website. And you'll um actually Desiree is on the website, and Eduardo, who's one of our newer clients, um is on the website, and they'll tell you their story. Um, you can see all the different services that we provide. So you can donate that way, and also Lewis mentioned Best in Drag. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I'm um, associated uh, and have worked with Alliance for Housing and Healing for a really long time now, over 10 years. It is a fundraiser. It's called Best in Drag Show. This year, the show was on uh, October 6th? 3rd. It was on October 3rd. It's the first Sunday of every October. It's the first Sunday of October every year. It's a magnificent show, and its roots you know, started in, uh, in, in a living room. In a living room on uh, West Mountain, West Hollywood. Wow. Yeah. Now it's at the Orpheum. Is it at the Orpheum it's every year? It's at the Orpheum it's Theater. It's at the Orpheum Theater, 2,000-seat theater. Um, Kathy Griffin opens the show every year. We have celebrity judges, and it's the, it's, the conceit is that it's a, it's a spoof on the Miss America pageant, and when the curtain goes up, we're down to the five semifinalists, and those last five semifinalists go through the bathing suit competition, the evening gown, talent, and the question, and then our celebrity judges vote and crown best in drag and you get absolutely nothing for it but you know who does get something (laughs) the clients yes of alliance for housing and healing because 96 94 94 cents of every dollar that we raise goes directly to client services yes that's like unheard of yeah well that's unheard of yeah yeah. 100, 100 staff and 85 are social workers. Yeah, that's yeah. a really great. We're very, very lean. That's awesome. In addition to doing all of our fundraising and our communications, I'm also responsible for all of our offices. We have three offices. We have one in law and we have one in Eagle Rock. We have one in West Hollywood. We have one in Long Beach. Um, and so we are all over the place making sure that people are taken care of. And this year we raised over three hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the charity in one night in one, one night one night, night. yes yeah. it's a good time you guys you'll love it so it is a good time you'll love it again you can go on their website and donate you can also get information on the best in drag show and come buy a ticket it's a night of just so hilarious if you fun. participate if you want to be Yes. One of the contestants. Oh, yeah. you can you know? totally come and be yes. a participant and a contestant auditions will you know be up soon i think they're in march yes and um and it's a good way to give back it's been a great way for me to give back and just be a part of something that is greater than myself yes and have tatiana come out every year and do her thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, Miss, you know, Miss Tatiana Lewis's alter drag alter ego, if you don't know. <laughs> now you know. Now you know. Yes. Yeah, so what's the website? 
www.alliancehh.org. A-L-L-I-A-N-C-E-H-H.org. Yes. This has been a pleasure. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming and speaking with me and Kim. It's been my pleasure. I'm really happy to spend some time with you. Thank you for asking me. Yes. This is it from from me and Kim. Me and Kim. (laughs) Kim and I. Ah, yes. Yes. Thank you for listening. Bye, you guys. (laughs) 